Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Charlotte Bond. Love can raise us up. Love can tear us down. It can be our strength, our weakness, and everything in between. And inevitably, love makes fools of us all. While we enjoy reading a good romance, a love story is rarely just a love story. It has so many other uses within a narrative. One of the most common uses of romance in a narrative is motivation. And though we would really like to see the fridging of women as a trope die, it can be used effectively. But how else do romance subplots work to serve the greater narrative? How do authors and their characters use love to their advantage? Joining us in this episode to discuss the power of love is an author who has made me cry, throw books across the room in frustration, and get rather hot under the collar while quietly sitting in my living room. We are very honoured to be welcoming Tasha Suri to Breaking the Glass Slipper. Tasha, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes, (laughs) I really love that introduction. Hello, I'm Tasha Suri and I write mostly epic fantasy novels with very large romance subplots. I'm the author of Empire of Sand and Realm of Ash, which make up the Books of Amber duology, which are Mughal-inspired fantasy novels. And I have a book that has possibly just come out called The Jasmine Throne, which is the first in the Burning Kingdoms trilogy and is a well, an epic fantasy set in an Indian-inspired world about morally grey lesbians who set an empire ablaze. I, I love that as a pitch line. It's great. I was really delighted when I came up with it because the one thing I really struggled with with my first books was coming up with a good pithy pitch. And the minute I worked one out for this book, I was like, yes, I finally accomplished the goal, the marketing goal. <laughs> Honestly, that really is a marketing goal. I, I cannot do the elevator pitch to save my life. And they're all like, you must do the elevator pitch. And I'm like, no, no, it's just impossible to condense this book into a pithy sentence. So uh, kudos. Right. I mean, you sit there and you write a whole novel and then you have to distill it down. It is not impossible. Yeah, no one tells you when you become an author that you're going to have to know how to market your own books and talk to people. Not necessarily a skill that we all have. What are some of your favourite romantic love tropes? And I I do call out romantic love because there are obviously other kinds of love. Do you have any particular romantic love tropes that you love for speculative fiction? Are there different ones that you see coming up in speculative fiction that don't necessarily come up elsewhere? Or, you know... Like fridging, are there any other romantic tropes you'd wish would just die a death? I mean, I think that speculative fiction lends itself really well to the mistaken or secret identities trope. And I love that one a lot. I was just thinking that one of my favourite tropes, which I don't see enough in speculative fiction, and I wish I did, was the person A is evil and amoral, but will do anything for person B and would never harm person B and thinks person B is perfect. I think that's a really good trope. It's, you know, it's not an ethical trope, but it's a fun trope. That's Dr. Horrible, isn't it? And his sing-along blog. I'm sure that was that. You know, I've never seen that. Oh, it's wonderful. You really should. It's it's only like 20 minutes. I don't even know if you can still get it these days. I think the last time I saw the DVD, it was about £70 because it's so, <laughs> so cold. Yeah, it is just such a, a wonderful idea. And because it's told from the villain's perspective, it makes it a really, a really wonderful little, little take on it all. And who doesn't like watching Nathan Fillion? I mean... I, I might have to check that out. If it's on YouTube, I'll watch it, but I'm not paying £70 to um, get hold of it because uh, I'm cheap. Mm, any tropes? I mean, obviously I hate the fridging trope and I would love to see fridging go. That doesn't mean I don't think that love interest should, you know, not die because I think sometimes death is quite interesting, but it feels like fridging is slightly different. It, it's a bit cheap. Any other tropes? Enemies to lovers? I think everybody loves a good enemies to lovers trope. Oh yeah. Pride and prejudice just everywhere. Um, I'm on board. Yeah. I kind of feel like that's one that I've seen it so much that I'm already looking for slightly new angles on it. Bit of subversion. Mm. I mean, I do, Mm. I do love a good enemies to to lovers, but I feel like it has been very popular lately. 
sort of a, as a branch off of Enemies to Lovers, I would like to see more villain romances. Oh, yes. I think they're quite tricky to do well. They're almost like the souffle of romance tropes. If you do it slightly wrong, the whole thing will just, you know, fall in on itself. But there, there is like a perfect combination of stuff that makes the villain love interest really work. And I'm still waiting to find the book that does that. But one day, one day it will find its way to me. Hmm. Yeah. I was just trying to think of any villain romances and the one that popped to mind is uh, Drusilla and Spike from Buffy. But I can't think of any books. That makes me sad. Yeah. Yeah, I'm struggling. I mean, Malice came out recently, but I don't know that I would class it as a villain romance because I think it's more a villain origin story. Like the romance itself is quite gentle. Have we identified a gap in the market? Authors listening. (laughs) No, don't give anyone ideas. I want to take this one. I'm sure everybody would be very excited to hear that. I mean, I can I can definitely give it a go, but I think if anybody else does want to do it, perhaps that's a good idea. I mean, I find I lean generally towards more gentle romances. So in my first book, possibly kind of in my second, I used the arranged marriage trope a fair bit. And I do love the arranged marriage trope. And I do think you see that a fair bit in speculative fiction, like um, Winter's Orbit that just came oh, out yeah. had that uh- one. Yeah, I was just about to say that one. I love that book and I thought that was done really well, that trope. It was such a good book. Yeah. I loved it, it so brilliant. much. Yeah, it was uh, oh, yeah, really enjoyed it. And I don't I don't actually read um science fiction that much, but I think it's because it was quite soft science fiction. Mm. So mm. I was like, yeah, this is great. I've actually been like um much more into science fiction than I usually am. Like usually I don't get on with it at all, but I read Murderbot recently, which is a terrible example to bring up now because it has no romance. But it, it had that kind of soft emotional stuff as the focus that I really love. And I just thought that was brilliant. And it's only a novella. So if you want to read something in sci-fi that's just really enjoyable, All Systems Red is a really good book. I was about to say, is that All Systems Red with the, the Murderbot series? Yep, that's right. That's my cat, by the way. Yay! Hi, cat! Hi, she sounds like the world is ending, but I promise it's not. This is just the noise she makes all the time. Oh, well, it's actually a slightly nicer noise than my cat that croaks at me like a, like a toad. <laughs> she wants something and I'm like, Aww. that is not an attractive sound. I think she's gone quiet. Have you gone quiet? No, no, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> what were we talking about again? <laughs> Sorry. We, we could probably move on to another question. It's, this is a good time to move on. <laughs> I've got to admit that me, as much as anyone, I really love a good rags to riches love story. But this trope seems to have a really special place in fantasy. And I wondered if that was because there are so many fantasy fantasy novels where there's a feudal style secondary fantasy world. Um, Do you think that might be why these love stories work so well in fantastical settings and why we see them so often in them? Yes. (laughs) To give a slightly longer answer... I I feel like a lot of fantasy is about dealing with real world stuff, be it anxieties or realities or desires, um, given a larger stage or a stage that's so separate from our world that it lets us deal with those feelings without making us feel... It's a catharsis without making us have to deal with the real world. So it's the best of fantasy. It gives you this emotional release um, without necessarily depressing you horribly is is kind of the the level that I'm at on that one. Although fantasy is often in feudal or monarchical systems, I do think there are like huge power disparities in the real world, and often you'll find people who do not have a lot of money or who are who feel powerless know that it's very very difficult to get out of that position. So it's a real fantasy to be able to have a rags to riches story. And I think if you go to fantasy and you get to read that story, that that kind of gives you that fantastical release that you want. And that's especially true with romance, because you can read about somebody who's got nothing and then can get anything or do anything. Because in fantasy, that's kind of just, that's what the story is, right? You go from nothing to accomplishing something so great that it's world changing. So in The Jasmine Throne, the romance is between a princess who is imprisoned and disgraced, who had everything arguably, 
and a maidservant who's just a maidservant, as far as we know at the start of the story anyway, and has nothing. And so there's no reason for these two people to fall in love. In fact, there's like a huge number of reasons that they shouldn't. And yet they still do. And that's the kind of romantic fantasy of the story, I guess. I do feel like I kind of subvert it a little bit because the princess is having a terrible time and she's imprisoned and nothing's going really well for her. And the maidservant isn't really just a maidservant and she has some other stuff going on, but it still kind of has those kind of seeds in there, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And I think if we did the same rags to riches story and they were all Cinderella's, it would be a little bit dull. And I say, I like the way you've taken the princess and kind of cast her down. But again, we don't want any spoilers, but presumably part of the novel is her moving from her own rags to riches story. It's just, it's a bit more, <laughs> bit more. she's sort of quite high up to start up with and then moves up a little bit more. Because like you say, all fantasy is about finding yourself and, and moving on and achieving your dreams. So this is all just part of it. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, I won't spoiler it, but of course, if a character starts a novel in a bad place, you'd hope by the end of it, they'd be in a better place, I guess, unless it's grimdark. I was just about they to say, <laughs> grimdark. but even then they kind of have some fun in the middle. So I guess they, they do rise a little bit, even if they then end up back where they were. Yeah, true. And sometimes they end up in like much more fun and interesting for us places where things are much worse for them, but we're having a nice time as readers and that's really what's important. I love it. I think you should do grimdark next. I think that'd be good. <laughs> I will tell my editor and see what she says. <laughs> See, for me, I want to say, really, are we having a better time, Tasha? Or are we very upset with the authors who are doing things to our characters that we are not happy about? <clears throat> but that's... <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Everything's fine by the end of the novel. Everyone's happy and everything's going well. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Should uh, should be nice to the guests, I know. All right. <laughs> So uh, apart from the kissing and all the sexy bits, is there anything different between a romance and an odd couple sort of buddy story? You know, because when you boil it all down, isn't it just two disparate people coming together and forming a connection? Or do you think that there's extra things bubbling under the surface with a romance uh, that you don't get in a buddy story? Did you just make a kissing sound? I wondered that. It was like a. I wondered that too. Yeah, I kind of imagine the sexy <laughs> she, kiss and wink. Oh yeah, yeah. She just she did oh, the yeah. kiss. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. For yeah, approval. It was good. It's a bit like a sound effect, you know. To yeah, it was a nice little illustration to the to the question. Come on, I, I really commit to my part, and my part tonight <laughs> is you know talking about the sexy bits and uh, bringing the filth. So I'm leaning into. Well, it. I was I was quite disappointed since this was my original question, but I have to say that I think your delivery <laughs> your delivery is is worth it. It's great. I don't think I could do that. I haven't got the sexy wink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's amazing that you can manage to do the sexy wink through a media that has no visuals, but it came through. It came through. That's why. We are the podcasters. Megan <laughs> is just that talented. <laughs> right. I should probably answer the question, right? I should answer Sorry, the question. Yeah, my bad. No, no, I, I love felt like tangents. I should draw attention to the fact that there was this a sound effect and I was like, this is great. <laughs> no, you did the right thing. You did the right thing drawing attention to that. Um, I'll shut up now. No, no, no. You're good. You're good. Um, I'm just trying to remember what the question was. I remember. Sorry. Fine. <laughs> so... Is there any difference between an odd couple buddy story versus a romance? Well, I mean, yes, because I also think that there are, there are plenty of romances where you wouldn't necessarily even have kissing or sex and you would still know it's a romance, especially because people are complicated and romance is complicated. I guess as a genre convention, you would know, but real love is so weird. Anyway, I don't know why I went on that tangent. My point being... I always think of Sam and Frodo as a really good example of this because their relationship feels like a love story, but at the end they go off and go their separate ways. And, you know, one of them ends up with a hobbit lady. And I guess in a buddy story, you're not saying these people are meant for each other or could potentially be meant for each other and spend forever together. You're saying these people are friends. And that's not to say that friendship isn't humongously powerful and can tie you like together for 
a lifetime. And you see that a lot in fantasy and other spec fic. But there's something different about romance. And personally, I just find that something different really interesting and I love to see it. I love that kind of happily ever after. I'm not promising to give my characters that, but I do love the potential of that when you have two characters that you don't necessarily get with a kind of odd couple buddy thing. This is interesting because where's the boundary between, you know, a friendship, a very deep friendship and a romance? I mean, it's very hard to draw a line for where where it crosses over. And I think your example of Frodo and Sam is really spot on for this because it's quite, I think you're right to say that there is a certain romantic element to it, but it never becomes that. And I just think that's that's really interesting that there could, you know, it's not such a, to talk about romance, it's not such a straightforward concept, especially when you have these platonic friendships that can be extremely deep. Yeah, like I, I've just said all this stuff about how romance works versus friendship and I'm questioning myself already because of course you do have friendships that can be more intense than a romance and you can have romances that are not like, that don't end in that kind of, that can be happy but don't end in that specific kind of monogamous model. So now I don't know what anything is. Everything no, no. is a mystery now. No, no, I, I like that it's a mystery. I think it's cool. But what did you you said about monogamous model? Do you think that there is certain what is it about monogamy and romance? Is there a link there? I think there is. One, there's not a lot of polygamous romance around in spec fic. There is some, there is some, but not a lot. And I think traditionally, in a traditional kind of romantic narrative model that you would maybe pick up in a Mills and Boone back in the day, the goal is to end in a monogamous romantic relationship that's meant to last forever. But I can see plenty of reasons why that's not necessarily the right model that you want to end with because it's so limiting this has just thrown up loads of existential questions for me. So, so cheers for that. Um, Sorry. It's okay. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> I was just thinking because I'm an editor and I edit quite a lot of romance and I've been on courses on how to write a good romance novel and how to break it all down. And one of the things I do tend to find and why I brought up this question about the buddy story is because at the essence of it, the romance and the buddy story is about two very conflicting characters initially sort of butting heads, but then realising that actually they have enough in common that they can be friends, but more importantly, that their weaknesses and their strengths match up. So where one is weak, one is strong, and they balance out together. And that's kind of the essence of what you look for um, in a really good romance. And what you sort of, and I'm thinking when I say buddy movies, like, gosh, I'm my age, Turner and Hooch and all that kind of stuff, you know, where it really is two, usually two guys from the 80s, with all my examples. But when we then think about Frodo and um, Samwise, like you were saying there, I think that kind of is a step to the side because they never really butt heads. It's never a case of them coming together and finding that their weaknesses are, you know, the weaknesses of opposing the strengths and, and they kind of meld together and fit like a lock and a key. I always found that Frodo and Sam were two people who might bicker a bit, but at the end of the day were solid friends and would watch out for each other in a world where everyone was turning against one another. And it wasn't about them coming together from complete opposite ends. It was about them drawing closer. And for me, I think romance is often you do, you just got this idea in your head, like Pride and Prejudice and all the other things in our history, where you do have two completely opposite people because I'm going, wow, okay, you know what? Actually, I quite like you and we get on quite well together. And, and look, we complement each other quite well. So maybe romance conventions are too limiting and don't encompass love in all its complexities. Well, that's the thing. Are we talking about your mm. existential idea of love or are we talking about the written love that you expect and the the methods that writers employ to really draw their audience in? So I think there's, there's quite an interesting idea that, like you're saying, with all your existential ideas and, and really questioning what love is, you then also have to look at well, what is love on the page? When you really look at the classic romances that we know, they do tend to be opposites coming together, um, which isn't necessarily what it is in life. In life, you tend to find people that you're quite like and then you get to like them a bit better, and you do have the Frodo and Sam things. So maybe that's why that is so enduring, because although it's not 
I've got quotes, literally love, literary, as in, in that you would find in a book. It does quite reflect humanity who do come together and get closer rather than going for someone who is completely opposite. But then there's the whole, um, and I'm thinking of fanfic now, but the whole convention of friends to lovers. And I don't know that that fits the kind of contentious model because you're already friends, right? And it's about it's the Frodo Sam model again, isn't it? It's you're realising that this person that you care about, that you ha- already have this connection with, is someone you want to have an even deeper connection with, but it's not from a position of contention. It's from a position of already liking or already trusting. Absolutely. And I think it's fascinating to see the way other genres are subverting the romantic tropes. Mm. Because like I said, you you read any romantic fiction, like you were saying, Mills and Boone, which is still going today, still going strong, four historical titles a month at least and all their specials and all the other publishers that have popped up that just dish out all this stuff that is two opposites coming together. But when you read something like fantasy or sci-fi where love is involved, it's always very different. But, you know, for the for the wide populace, this is what we're spoon-fed by, um, by Hollywood and things like that. It's just opposites coming together. And what really is, is love? Is it, you know, Frodo and Sam? Is it um, the guys of the Jasmine Throne, is it the guys in Pirates of the Caribbean? Just so many examples out there and they all work on different levels. You can't see me staring into space, but that's, that's <laughs> what's happening. I, I think we need a whole extra episode on this, really, don't we? Just this one question alone. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a big thing. Well, should we talk a little bit about the negative aspects of, of love? Because we had a few questions about this, about love um, being used as leverage, um, you know, I think uh, was this. This is Meg talking about you know saying I was a brother using a sister's love for him to get her to mm. do terrible things, um, and 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 why I was thinking about this as how love is often portrayed as weakness in fantasy that you know that you you have someone's love for someone makes them weak and makes them decide to to sacrifice something and then oh no look what's happened and why is this um why is this negative side of love why do we like to read about that and like to explore that so much. I think, again, it's something that feels really real. I've always found it very interesting that you kind of, when you read a romance, often familial trauma goes hand in hand. Like, I still love Mills and Boone, and I used to read a lot of the kind of billionaire books. And what I found really interesting about those ones is that you would have this, this guy who would come along, and it was about the romance between two people, but it was also often about terrible families. So there is often a distant mother or there is a distant father or there are siblings who do terrible things. And part of learning to love each other is also dealing with all the family baggage. And that seems to be part of the genre convention, but it's also kind of part of life because everyone has family baggage. There is nobody in the world who has a perfect family that gives them no baggage. There's just nobody. So everyone has to contend with the reality that the people who love you can also hurt you. And that can be in very serious ways or very small ways, which means that love is inherently in some way a weakness, but also a source of power. I really like exploring that in books. So in The Jasmine Throne, there's a lot of characters, but you have um, the relationship between Marlene and Priya, the princess and the maidservant, and you also have lots of familial relationships. So there are lots of really bad brother-sister relationships where brothers do use their sister's love against them to make their sisters do what they want or vice versa. And you have parents or parental figures who do wrong out of a sense of love or betray the love that children have in them. And you also have the relationship that Marlene and Priya have where Marlene uses up to a certain point Priya's affection or care for her against her. And that becomes a big thing. Yeah, love is always complicated by pain. That sounds very depressing, but I kind of think it's true. But I really like the idea of exploring the ways that understanding that kind of love and deciding what to do with it can also be a strength. That was a good answer. Yeah. (laughs) Do you think there are certain kinds of betrayals or, you know, certain things that characters just can't do? if they're going to somehow manage to come back from that, if they can rescue the romance or, or the love between them, whether or not it's romantic love or not. 
I mean, is there something that you just can't do? Because betrayal is a thing. Like, it's almost in every single romance. There's always a moment where you have the two characters. I did this in my book that, like, it's not it's not going to be published or anything. It's literally sitting on my computer. Um, but, you know, you have this thing where like, they're getting closer and closer and closer. And then the betrayal happens. And, you know, like, someone finds out that they're not who they're supposed to be. And actually, they've done terrible things. And, I, and yet there is there's always this, you know, big chance that you can come back from that. So yeah, it's interesting because it's like, how big does the betrayal have to be before it's like, you know, irreconcilable? God, you know, I don't know. I've definitely read romances where people do things where I was like, you know, if that happened to me in real life, I'd have walked, I'd have walked a long time ago. But part of the fantasy, I think, is that it can be overcome, that somebody can do something awful and they will be contrite because that is a fantasy and very rarely happens in real life. Or that, you know, they'll be contrition and they'll overcome this thing that they did or somehow circumstances will help you overcome it. So I think that is part of the, the fantasy of romance. There isn't really much that people can't get away with. I mean, we still like Romeo and Juliet. I mean, they died, but we still like it despite the fact that I think, you know, Romeo killed Juliet's cousin, wasn't it? God, I should know this. This is Shakespeare. Yep. It's really bad. Yeah. So something unforgivable is forgiven. And I've read plenty of romances where the guy has done awful things and then they get through it or whatever it might be. I guess the only thing that you probably can't generally conventionally get away with is cheating. I think that one's kind of looked down upon. But even then, I've read romances where it started with, you know, the guy is this, that or the other, and then they overcome it somehow, which is a very heteronormative model, I will say. But See, I was going to say the one thing you can't come back from is killing your partner's pet, but that's... Oh, oh, I thought you were going to say parent. (laughs) I was going to go for parent. No, no, no. I mean, that you can probably overcome, but if you kill my cat, We'll go, this is dumb. I have never read a romance where someone has killed... (laughs) No, wait, Wuthering Heights. Wuthering Heights, that happens, right? I I don't think he kills the dog, but he definitely hangs it. Wait, no, it's his wife's dog. It's fine. Not the love interest. Oh, that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) No, I have have so, so little tolerance for animal deaths in books. I mean, like, to the point where I'll actually just throw the book down be like no not reading it i was watching a film and i can't remember which one it was i think it was over the moon and i'm now going to spoil over the moon so if anybody hasn't seen that and wants to not be spoiled stop listening but the little girl has this bunny rabbit that she takes with her to the moon and then it falls in love with the the jade rabbit on the moon and she leaves it on the moon and it might have been because my bunnies were really young but i burst out crying And I was just like, how could she leave her bunny behind on the moon? It's her bunny. How could she abandon her bunny? And my mom was just sitting there like, this is the child I birthed. This is, this is what I brought into the world. A woman who's crying (laughs) over a cartoon bunny at her big age. But yeah. (laughs) Oh, I'm glad it's not just me then. It's It's definitely not just you. I I have problems. One of Neil Gaiman's books, I think it's The Ocean at the End of the Lane, has a kitten gets run over in like on page three and no. I stopped reading it. No, genuinely, I stopped reading it. I was like, no, she <laughs> put it down. I've never picked it up again. I was like, I'm not here for this. No, kittens can't die. Unacceptable. No. Yeah. No. No. It's, it's really funny because we talk about this all the time, like, you know, grimdark and, you know, babies dying and people, innocent people getting horribly sacrificed. I'm like completely fine with this, but the minute it's a cat, or a dog, or something like animal, innocent animal. I, I'm just not there for it. I, I just have a different scale. I don't know. I, I think I feel like humans. I can I can cope with. You know, I'm exactly the same. Pretty much any human dying, I'm like, yeah, fine. It's fiction. Little kitten, yeah. you know, cute little puppy. No, can't do it. No, no. Oh, phew. I feel like <laughs> it's not just me. <laughs> I'm just so mean. I'm just like, yeah, just kill the, kill the babies, kill the children. <laughs> don't care about them. <laughs> but my lovely kittens, don't touch them. So if I ever write Grimdark, I just need to kill kittens and I'll be on the top level there. Okay. Oh, I've God, got no. That. I, I, I will never. I Don't, don't, don't write Grimdark and kill kittens. <laughs> I don't think Please. I could do it. I don't think I could do it, honestly. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I don't have it in me to to any any sort of animal cruelty um, or, or 
or animal deaths um, is, yeah, one of those things. I could probably hand on my heart say, I'm never going to write. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think we all have our limits and some yeah. of them are pets, basically. <laughs> okay. Well, we've told us a little bit about, you know, how, how love can be used against you and it can be weakness. It can be power. It can, you know, it can be used. But what about like when, you know, how does it affect the power dynamics when it comes to different kinds of power that each person holds? For example, you know, we talked about rags to riches, you know, someone, someone is very wealthy, someone maybe needs help to survive in the world. But what about if it's say physical strength or a, you know, fantasy, a magical strength versus power in, you know, the whatever class system they have or, or or so on. I mean, how do those things impact the relationships, the trajectory of the story? And, and is it different in say a fantasy story where some of that power differential is a magical thing? You know, is that different from say just a, a, a normal, um, I'm, I'm going to say realistic in air quotes fantasy, because I'm not sure I've ever read or watched a, realistic fantasy story but (laughs) I mean a romance story but yeah so I mean do you think that does change things oh I don't know I think dealing with real power like disparities is very fraught and also very loaded with stuff people bring to it so I've read a lot of fantasy lately that deals with kind of like the colonizer colonized um dynamic in really interesting ways. So The Unbroken by C.L. Clark. Um, uh, yes, it's on my TBR, literally looking so at it right good. now. So good, so yeah, good. it's really good. Fireheart Tiger as well by Aliette de Bodard. Yep. And I'm trying to think of others. I guess The Jasmine Throne fits in this too. So I'll put that there. And um, not quite the same. It's not quite colonizer and colonized, but the 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 romance between the non-binary sapphic protagonist and another woman in um, She Who Became the Sun kind of fits that kind of interesting power dynamics that have some kind of real world significance thing i think even though it's it's definitely not rags to riches and it's much more complicated um that aside and what i find really interesting about that is that people kind of have complex desires or kink on or think a lot about real world power disparities and you know those are things that fascinate people and have been written about a lot and what I really like about seeing it in fantasy is that fantasy is dealing with those power disparities on like a huge level. Like it's literally, you have a colonizer and you have um, the colonized nation and that nation may not be colonized by the end of the novel. And you get to see that on the micro level in a relationship and also see the ways that an author can depict the kind of the fantasy of being able to take control in a situation you would never actually be able to take control of in real life. So I think that the Unbroken does this in a really interesting way. So I won't go further into that because I don't want to spoil it, but I really recommend that. But essentially, I think real power dynamics have very complicated stuff around them that people bring to the book when they read it and have to be dealt with in a really complicated way. Whereas when you're doing something like magic or someone's a superhero or you know someone is literally a robot, because why not? It's different. You kind of take some of those really complicated things that you bring to it out and you just have the power stuff. And then I think you can just have the kind of the fantasy of somebody having power and being able to use that power. But in the romantic context, you get the kind of like the thrill of they could kill anybody, but they will do that to protect me. Or so-and-so can fly and they will take me flying because we love each other. And I'm making that sound really shallow, but I guess it's just, it's nice. It's really nice. I like it. That's it. <laughs> I mean, there's also the the kind of thing that I think goes hand in hand with things like vampires and all that sort of stuff, where, you know, especially when you come to sex and say, you know, you reach orgasm, you lose control, you're, you know, in the heat of the moment, you're passionate. What happens if you lose control of your abilities, your power, and you accidentally hurt the person you love? I feel like there's a lot of that in, especially in the vampire stuff, but just generally in in fantasy when it comes to romance with people who have 
powers and abilities, especially in stories where, you know, those powers are framed as something scary, you know, they're singled out, you know, it, this is a power that you have and nobody else has kind of thing. Like, you, you know, you see it with yeah. um, even things like X-Men and Rogue, you know, it's that kind of thing. It's that edge of danger, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's, yeah, I guess in a way that connects with the stuff I was talking about, real power dynamics, that people have very complicated and often filthy feelings about power dynamics. And I guess something like vampires or werewolves or even rogues powers are a safe way to kind of think about that and process it sexily. <laughs> just for the record, it's always safe to think about filth and discuss filth with me, just putting it out there. <laughs> <laughs> if you didn't guess. <laughs> It's funny because I've done quite a few interviews and panels and things about the question of power and romance with a bunch of different authors. And I think we've all kind of skirted around the fact that readers and writers find power disparities titillating, right? There's something about them that's really fascinating, like maybe not great in real life unless you've consented to it and had some kind of, you know, you've actually got some safe words and you've thought about what you're doing. But in fiction, it's quite an interesting space to explore them in a way that gives you that kind of catharsis that I think a lot of fantasy does, but it's more on the kind of romantic end rather than the kind of, I have space powers end of things. It's interesting that you you do skirt around that because... When you talk to people in, in, you know, like fandoms and stuff, the relationships they tend to sort of really stan are the ones that are somewhat questionable, if you would translate them. <laughs> Sorry. <into. laughs> it was just the way you said that. And I was just thinking of some of the worst ones I could think of. And anyway, go on. It's fine. <laughs> But, you know, like we, we do, we love, you know, and, and it's that kind of the bad boy thing. And I'm not sure that many of us really like the bad ones in real life. Oh, God, no. No, I don't have time for that. Exactly. But in a story, I mean, they can be really sexy. And <laughs> I think the problem, one of the problems is, is that you have this and I'm going really fandom um, discourse now, and I'm really sorry, is that you have a lot of people who love fantasy and love other fiction who, if you say villain romance to, will say, why are you bringing in things that are harmful and toxic, right? And they're not wrong, but then you also have other people who will say, but it's a fantasy. It's a, literally a fantasy novel, or it's literally a romance. It's a space outside of reality where you can explore these things safely and then you walk away from them. You know, it's, it's, you're not saying this is good. You're saying this is a fantasy and you're reading it and now you're walking away. It's like the whole, have you seen Shadow and Bone? Not yet. Yeah. I've seen the first three episodes. Have you read the books? I, I don't want to like no. make it. Oh, okay. Okay. No, I haven't. I, pro I probably, it's, it's not going to happen like anytime soon. I've got so many books to read. <laughs> I just, I wanted to use it as an example, but now I don't want to ruin it for you. So, Oh, no, um, no, just go for it. Go for it. I don't mind. Okay, so uh, there's, like, it really does the sexy villain trope really well, but it's it's a it's from a YA novel that kind of I read when I was in my early 20s, and I think a lot of people read when they were teenagers or in their early 20s. And it has this line in it, which is, um, which they actually put into the show, which is, fine, make me your villain. And it's like... Okay, that's pretty hot. It is pretty hot, right? And you have Ben Barnes saying it. <gasps> oh, he is really hot in that. In fact, yes. I need to watch another episode just just for him, really. Just just watch it to get that one line. But like, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, you've convinced me to to start it up again. But it's like I think you have people who kind of critique it, saying, "Well, it's really unhealthy. the The relationship dynamic there is really unhealthy. It's it's definitely humongously manipulative. It's abusive." And I'm like, "Yeah, it's meant to be, but also." he's really attractive and he says, fine, make me your villain. So you can have those two realities living at the same time. And I think that sometimes it's difficult to talk about that because it's kind of nuanced and it's complicated because people are complicated and you don't want to kind of be like, yeah, I totally support villains having romances. And what you mean is I really support people getting to read about villains having romances, but not doing that in real life because that's bad for you. I was interested in knowing your thoughts on whether women in love 
have different experiences of being in love than their fictional male counterparts. I think we've obviously established early on that the kind of romance that I edit is very different to the kind of romance that you see in sort of fantasy and sci-fi and to a certain extent horror as well. But I think horror kind of needs to be left out of this one for the moment because love in horror is just, yeah, a whole episode on its own. But I mean, what do you think about writing experiences of women in love and men in love? Do you find that you're writing similar things? Do you find that they encounter different problems or the same problems or they go through the same sort of mental journey of, oh, do I love them? But, oh, I don't know. Or is it just like, oh, I love this woman and, and that's it. You know, it's, I just wondered how it came across from the point of view of writing fantasy. So I've usually written about love from the perspective of women. So I haven't really written the perspective of men in love at all. I guess you see it a lot in fantasy though, of course, because a lot of fantasy is from the male perspective. And I'm of the opinion that sometimes you see, and not just in fantasy, you see love from the perspective of men that doesn't fully encapsulate women as human beings, which is my least favourite kind of love story, to be honest. And that's in obviously in a heterosexual love story. But I think when you read a really good love story, it should capture the humanity of both partners. And every time I've read, be it gay or straight love stories from a male perspective that do that, I really don't think there's any difference in the way that falling in love is portrayed apart from societal stuff. So, you know, if you're reading a slow burn, it's a slow burn for men, just like it is for women. If you're reading a story that where they kind of instantly fall in love, they do the same thing. Because I don't really think that in a good love story, there is like a huge difference in the perspectives of men and women, if that makes sense. It does indeed. <laughs> yeah, totally yeah. makes sense. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that we're not any, it's, it's like, this is the, the it's so, all so crazy. You know, we talk about these differences because actually we're all human beings and this is why I think labels are ridiculous. Speaking as someone who reads a lot of historical fantasy, I often find that, as Tasha is saying, it's the society implications of falling in love that are so different when it's men and women. Um, and particularly mm-hmm. thinking about fantasy where you might have the young prince falling in love or the young princess, you know, there's there's very different ideas about how you seal an alliance with a neighbouring kingdom. Talk about the rags to riches again. It's the idea that society expects kings to marry in one way and peasants to marry in another. Um, And if you're writing a historical romance, you know, the lord of the manor can't necessarily fall in love with a common woman, but that's what happens all the time in romance. You've got to find a a way of bringing the two of them together in a way that seems sensible. So, you know, certainly from my point of view as a reader and editor of this, I find that it's they might experience love in the same way and they might have the same sort of doubts about whether they're compatible, but it's usually the society pressures which do make it a very interesting and different experience for both of them. I I totally agree. And I I was just thinking of a lot of the Regency romances I've read and that often it's in the kind of, in the het ones, both partners desire each other. They both think about each other physically, like, oh, he has great pecs or, you know, her bosom was heaving. (laughs) That's such a cliche example, but you know what I mean. But the implications of having a romance are so different for an unmarried young woman in the gentry than they are for a rake, let's say. And all of those things impact the way that they will interact with each other and the risks that they're willing to take and how their choices will impact their lives and therefore whether they will make those choices or not. And I do think that you see that in fantasy as well, like even in a sapphic love story or, you know, any kind. So when with the Jasmine Throne, their relationship is impacted by a lot of societal stuff. Like one of them comes from a society where homosexuality was at one point very normal, but then the country was colonised and the colonizers' point of view or the imperial point of view was that it was abnormal. And therefore that has had some nuanced impact on the way that characters from that country feel about homosexuality. So mostly they think it's normal, but they kind of are meant to not. And then the other character is from that conquering nation. So she understands that she is meant to feel a certain way 
about being queer. And she doesn't necessarily internalize that, but it impacts her behavior and her sense of what she can and can't get away with. And that all kind of has an impact on people's behavior. So yeah, I think that in certain ways, because of that, the way that men experience love and the way women experience love in a romance has to be different because your power positions are different. Your societal positions are different. But I do think the kind of the core experience of love is the same. It's an experience of vulnerability and desire, which is, you know, also quite vulnerable. How interesting then that the most gender balanced aspect of a novel is the romance aspect where gender really matters, because as human beings, when it boils down to it, we will experience love the same. What we have differently is the pressures that we're under to express that love or consummate it or whatever based on society. That's a really interesting idea, actually. I hadn't thought about it like that. It's in fantasy in particular, where you can play around with gender roles a lot more. It's never really about whether it's a man or a woman experience. It's whether it's a prince or a commoner, whether it's a priestess or a knight. It's those bits that really matter and really sort of define how they respond to their romance. Yeah, I feel like, I think you've hit the nail on the head there in a way that I just really didn't. Um, It's that sense of, it's the fantasy of equality, right? That for a moment in a romance, you are equals because you've chosen each other and because you're vulnerable to each other in this unique way. And that equality kind of defies every societal or magical or whatever thing that impacts you normally because you've made this choice. So for a brief moment, or perhaps forever, I guess, in Happy Ever After, you have that moment of equality. And we were talking earlier about, obviously, romance is used a lot as weakness um, and sort of, you know, can be exploited, but also sometimes it can be the driving force that drives you to do great things and to break away from society as well and go, you know what, I'm going to marry this woman because I can and I'm also going to storm that castle because damn it, I'm sick of the way we're ruled. So, you know, it's all kind of tied up again with this idea of moving forward and and achieving things. Yeah, love can be a great equaliser, I think. But I would say that I think that there's a lot of difference, and I, I suppose in, in in one sense it is the the sort of the social pressures again. But I think there's definitely difference in how we see men and women express their love. Mm. It's very different in terms of what kind of is allowed or what readers will will think of. You know, like say, okay, this is me down to a T, loving the the men who just can't express their love um you know i'm thinking lanjan i'm thinking spock i'm thinking i love i love how you just slid the untamed in there so oh, smoothly oh, yeah. just yeah but it is those kinds of men like i love them and and i find them just unbelievably sexy i don't know what that says about me and my baggage but there you go i do but if we had a woman who just like didn't communicate and was completely like cold and withholding and whatever. I don't think that it would have the same kind of impact for a romance. It's just not the kind of thing we expect from women. And I, yeah, I don't know. And, and and when you get women who are very, you know, open with their emotions and so on and so forth. Again, if you had that with the men, it's it's so much less usual. I mean, people, I don't know how they would react to that. And so I'd say in terms of, yes, we may all experience love in, in sort of quite universal ways, the expectations of how we in this world, but also our characters in our fantasy worlds actually express those things are very different and quite structured Oh yeah, I'd agree. But also the taciturn butch woman who doesn't express her feelings is definitely a trope in like in queer romances. I've definitely read that in some kind of like pulp ones that I got from Bella Books. So I know, I know those, that's kind of a thing. But I guess, again, that's, that's kind of like, well, it's not gendered, but it's perhaps there are certain ways that we think, or traditionally it's okay to express love or emotion within the kind of the heterosexual romance paradigm that change up and shift when you change that to any other kind of relationship. I feel like this is a great moment to actually ask you about that because um, you're in a unique position of having had experience writing heterosexual relationship and also 
homosexual relationships and sapphic in this case in the jasmine throne so i feel like um since we're already talking about you know the potential differences between um, and the, and the the inequality that is you know experienced in in how different people are allowed or permitted to express them themselves how have you found that dialogue is it has it been a very different experience writing these two relationships well, with Empire of Sand and with Realm of Ash. Thank you, Asami. Thank you for your contribution. Yeah? It's valuable. <laughs> she has a lot of opinions about romance. Um, with, <laughs> let me try that again. So with, <laughs> what are my books called? <laughs> with the Empire of Sand, with Empire of Sand and with Realm of Ash, I wanted to look at what makes healthy and loving relationship between two good and kind-hearted people in a world that wants them to have unhealthy, unkind relationships, in a world that's built to not encourage them to have that kind of bond. In the first book, Meher is forced to marry the sky and to all intents and purposes, he looks like a brute. She's terrified. She's made the decision to marry him to protect her own family. And then they both choose to treat each other with love and respect and to be kind to each other. And I found that very powerful to write. And it's kind of similar in the second book. And that's because I think that there is a lot of, um, there are a lot of toxic assumptions tied up in a lot of heterosexual romances that I kind of wanted to unpick for my own interest and own enjoyment. And it felt really important to me for these people to have this soft and loving relationship. That is not what I wanted with the Jasmine Throne. Because I think that sapphic relationships and to some extent, well, definitely any kind of queer relationship in fiction is often held to much higher standards, especially when it's written by um, people who are not white um, or when it's a romance between people of colour, because it's meant to be good representation, quote unquote. And I don't want to do that. I wanted to write something that had all the kind of thorniness and pathos that heterosexual romances are allowed to have in fiction. So I didn't sit there and think about making it a story where these two people talk a lot about how to be good to each other in a cruel world. I wanted them to just be cruel. So yes, they do have conversations and they build a real and meaningful bond, but it's a lot thornier and more difficult and I think that's all I'll say on that because my cat is distracting me quite horribly. Um, she was chip in. <laughs> yeah, she was agreeing that it was thorny and difficult. Yes, she was. She was definitely agreeing that. See? <laughs> She's like, yeah, finally. You understand me, bitch. <laughs> Let me get a word in here. Well, Tasha, it's been so wonderful to have you. Thank you so much for talking to us about love and romance and all the sexy bits. Thank you for having me and giving me an existential crisis about what <laughs> romance is. We're very sorry. About I've thoroughly enjoyed myself. Any time. <laughs> Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.